Welcome back to the Rules Plus podcast. The Siblings Rules Project continues with discussion of rules, similarities, and differences during regulation time versus overtime. The next to last dyad I've chosen to consider among rules separated at birth. My goal for the project is to consider 15 rules dyads that I find helpful in creating a better mind map to understand the neighborhoods where parallel rules live. The components of this week's dyad provide a study in rules with a split personality. The design of the NCAA tie-breaking system seeks to serve two masters, continuity versus finality. The system at once provides a way for play to continue in a manner that looks just like play during regular time, yet introduces tweaks in acknowledgement that play during extra time must in fact differ from regular time in important respects, if it is to be manageable. The result is Airsets football, a forgery of football that initially presents orchestrated managed single series, one per team, with scrimmage plays but not punts, and that ultimately decays into a contest of penalty kicks, or that is, competing extra point attempts. But before I go into today's topic, I need to complete some unfinished business from last episode's discussion of the dyad personal foul versus unsportsmanlike conduct foul. The unfinished business is for me to note the referee's mechanics for signaling 15-yard fouls. There are 17 official signals in Appendix F that are related to UNR and UNS penalty enforcement. So let me first recap last week's episode. Referring to Appendix G of the NCAA rules book, I identified 45 fouls that carry a 15-yard penalty. For each foul listed in Appendix G, you can view the official referee signal from Appendix F and view its rule citation. It turns out that in Appendix G, signal 38, used to indicate personal fouls, is listed for 16 of the fouls, and signal 27, used to indicate unsportsmanlike conduct fouls, is listed for 22 of the fouls. For the remaining eight fouls, neither signal 38 nor signal 27 is used. For one foul, fighting, both signals 38 and 27 are indicated, accounting for why the total is 16 plus 22 plus 8, which equals 46, rather than 45. In Rule 9, you'll find two sections concerning 15-yard fouls, Section 1 for personal fouls, and Section 2 for unsportsmanlike conduct fouls. While most of the 45 fouls listed in Appendix G are addressed in these two Rule 9 sections, 11 are not. Yet, of those 11, the prescribed official signal for seven of them is, nevertheless, Signal 27. So even though those seven fouls are not included in Section 2 of Rule 9, we are supposed to use the unsportsmanlike conduct signal to identify them to the stadium. 
So here are the seven fouls that are deemed to be a personal foul or unsportsmanlike conduct, yet are not listed in Section 2 of Rule 9. One, marking the ball, included in Rule 133. Two, changing jersey numbers to confuse the opponent, included in 142. Three, wearing a home jersey without permission, included in 145. Four, using illegal signal devices, included in 1410. Five, making rapid substitutions to the opponent's disadvantage, included in 352. Six, illegal wedge formation, included in 6110. And seven, tackling or blocking a player who has signaled for a fair catch, included in 641. Six of these fouls are indicated by signal 27. Only the seventh one, tackling or blocking a player who has signaled for a fair catch, is indicated by signal 38 for personal foul. It is worth noting what these seven outlier fouls are because the provision in 10 to 5 to carry over, quote, personal fouls and unsportsmanlike conduct fouls, end quote, when a team that scores a touchdown is fouled, would apply to these fouls too, even though they're not explicitly identified in Rule 9 as personal fouls or unsportsmanlike conduct fouls, except in the penalty specification of the official signal to be used. But knowing whether 1025 would apply to these fouls requires one more bit of information from the penalty specification of each one. Is the foul treated as a live ball or as a dead ball foul? The carryover provision of 1025 only applies to live ball fouls because the language refers to, quote, fouls by the non scoring team during a down, end quote. A down includes the interval between a legal snap until the ball becomes dead, that's in 271, namely the interval during which the ball is live. Only three of the fouls are designated as live ball fouls, marking the ball, changing numbers, and using a wedge formation. So only those three fouls could occur during a down that ends in a touchdown. So finally, we can conclude that the specification to use signal 27 for those three fouls means that only those three rare fouls should be carried over under the provisions of 10 to 5. That leads us to consider the four remaining fouls that are not included in Rule 9 and for which the specified official signal is neither 38 nor 27. They are 8. Team is not ready to play at the start of either half, included in 341, indicated by signal 21. 9. Kick catch interference, included in 641, and indicated by signal 33. 10. Offensive pass interference, included in 738, also indicated by signal 33. And 11. Defensive pass interference included in 738 as well, and as well indicated by signal 33. 
Even though the interference fouls are 15-yard live ball fouls, the 10-2-5 provision for the fouls to carry over does not apply because none of the fouls is a personal foul or an unsportsmanlike conduct foul. So if either team scores despite kick-catch or pass interference, the scoring team must decline the penalty in order to keep the score. One more loose end remains to tie down. That concerns signal sequencing for indicating UNR versus UNS fouls. You may be wondering about the 17 official signals in Appendix F that I mentioned that are related to UNR and UNS penalty enforcement. Well, here's what they are. One, signal 21, delay of game. Two, signal 22, substitution infraction. Three, signal 24, targeting. Four, signal 25, horse collar tackle. Five, signal 27, unsportsmanlike conduct. Six, signal 28, illegal blindside block. Seven, signal 29, sideline interference. Eight, signal 30, roughing or running into the kicker or holder. Nine, signal 33, interference. 10, signal 34, roughing the passer. 11, signal 38, personal foul. 12, signal 39, clipping. 13, signal 40, illegal block below the waist. 14, signal 41, chop block. 15, signal 45, face mask. 16, signal 46, tripping, and signal 17, signal 47, disqualification. You'll notice that many of the signals clarify the generic call of a personal foul or unsportsmanlike conduct, so we can encounter two types of situations. First, there can be fouls for which only signals 38 or 27 apply, such as a late hit out of bounds or hands to the face. If the referee is wearing a stadium microphone, he can elaborate on his hand signal by sharing that information. Otherwise, he can't. Second, there can be fouls for which signals besides 38 or 27 apply, such as for an illegal blindside block or a fourth instance of sideline interference. For those fouls, signals 28 and 29, respectively, apply. So, the referee should use a sequence of signals, 38 plus 28 and 27 plus 29, respectively, regardless of whether he's wearing a stadium microphone. Generally, even if a signal exists for a particular foul, such as signals 28 or 29, the referee should still lead off with the personal foul or unsportsmanlike conduct signal. On the other hand, for fouls that are 15 yards but not personal fouls, such as interference, clearly the referee should not use signals 38 or 27. Finally, if the referee is using a stadium microphone, he should be thorough and precise in his announcement, conveying the foul 
the offending team, the number of the player, the distance, the enforcement spot, and the down. Being precise in announcing the foul means using rulebook language and essential adjectives. For example, if the ball leaves the tackle box and a running back blocks a linebacker below the waist toward the original position of the ball, the referee should not announce crackback block or block below the waist. The term crackback is imprecise and now outdated. And depending on location and strike zone, some blocks below the waist are legal. We don't penalize legal blocks below the waist, so the referee should announce the foul is an illegal block below the waist. Note as well that a blindside block may be legal if there isn't forcible contact, so a foul announcement should include the clarification that there was an illegal blindside block. Well, so much for this episode's warm-up act. Time to get on to the new business, looking at regulation time versus overtime. I've already previewed perhaps the principal point about the source of similarities and differences between regulation time versus overtime, the NCAA tie-breaking philosophy of having it both ways. The NCAA wants real football to happen, but the NCAA has to cut some corners to make that happen. As I see it, there are five nagging problems in moving from regulation time that overtime rules have to address. Problem one, using a game clock makes no sense, but using a play clock still does. Problem two, scrimmage kicks, but only ones involving a place kick, still happen. Three, turnovers still happen. Four, penalties still happen. And five, turnovers and penalties often happen during the same down. Let's see how the rules address each problem in turn. Problem one, periods, time factors, and substitutions, rule 313. Let's get one thing straight at the start. Games governed by NCAA rules do not go into overtime. Instead, if the score is tied after four periods, Rule 313 provides for a, quote, tie-breaking system, end quote, that consists in playing, quote, extra periods, end quote, with eight exceptions to the playing rules used during the first four periods. The exceptions are listed in provisions identified as subarticles A through H. Here is my quick and dirty summary of those exceptions. A. After the fourth quarter, officials have some quiet time to gather at midfield and remind each other of all the tiebreaker procedures they've rarely used and have probably forgotten. B. In a UIL exception to the NCAA exception, for Texas high school football, the officials will escort the head coaches to midfield to conduct a coin toss to determine who will determine initial possession and which end of the field will be used, 
with no option for the winner of the toss to defer his option. C. If there are subsequent even-numbered extra periods, the loser of the initial coin toss will assume the role of the winner of the coin toss. D. An extra period is defined as consisting of two possession series, each beginning at the 25-yard line, centered between the hash marks unless Team A requests otherwise. E. Now here's a major difference from regulation time. Number one. Each possession series lasts until Team A scores or fails to make a first down. That's it. The ball remains alive after a change of possession, but Team A may not have a first down if it regains possession and does not score during the play. Beginning with the third extra period, each team's possession series consists of one play from the three-yard line to attempt a two-point try. F. For the second extra period only, a team that scores a touchdown must attempt a two-point try. A one-point try attempt is not illegal, but it cannot score a point. G. And now here's the number two major difference from regulation time. When there are fouls after a change of team possession, penalties against either team are declined by rule. But of course, there are three exceptions. Exception one, penalties for flagrant personal fouls, unsportsmanlike conduct fouls, dead ball personal fouls, and live ball fouls treated as dead ball fouls are enforced on the succeeding play. Exception two, a score by a team committing a foul during the down is canceled unless the foul is a live ball foul treated as a dead ball foul. Exception three, if both teams foul and team B had not fouled before the change of possession, the fouls cancel and the down is not repeated. Of course, there are exceptions here, too, for flagrant personal fouls, unsportsmanlike conduct fouls, dead ball personal fouls, and live ball fouls treated as dead ball fouls, all of which are enforced, you guessed it, on the succeeding play. H. Each team is allowed one timeout. Unused timeouts from regulation periods or from other extra periods do not carry over. A timeout taken between extra periods is charged to the upcoming period. Problem two, scrimmage kicks still happen. The only kind of scrimmage kick that can happen in an extra period is a field goal attempt. So one provision in Rule 6 does not apply during extra periods any more than it does during the first four periods. I'm referring to the revision in 6.3.13 for fouls by the kicking team, which grants Team B the option to enforce most penalties from the previous spot or from the spot where it will put the ball in play following the kick. But then there is the case of an unsuccessful field goal attempt untouched or touched beyond the neutral zone by Team B. The various provisions in Rule 6 concerning eligibility to touch, catch, or recover are irrelevant, 
and the various provisions in Rule 8, Section 4, concerning who will next put the ball in play, are also irrelevant. However, one otherwise obscure provision in Section 2 is most certainly relevant. Section 2, about how touchdowns are scored, provides that a touchdown shall be scored when, quote, a scrimmage kick is legally caught or recovered in the opponent's end zone, end quote. You can find that in 821D. If an unsuccessful field goal attempt is muffed by a Team B player, for example, and is then recovered by Team A in the end zone, Team A has scored a touchdown. Problem three, turnovers still happen. We've already seen in exception E for rule 313 that the ball remains alive after a change of possession, but team A may not have a first down if it regains possession and does not score during the play. This is a harsh exception to 511E1 that provides for awarding a new series to the team in legal possession when the ball becomes dead if a change of possession occurred during the down. The exception is necessary to accommodate the provision that an extra period is defined as consisting of two possession series, one for each team. Problem four, penalties still happen. We've already seen that the only scrimmage kick plays that are relevant to extra periods are field goal attempts, which are not covered by rules for post-scrimmage kick enforcement if the ball is untouched by Team B beyond the neutral zone. However, we've also seen that if Team B does touch the ball, the rules governing scrimmage kicks apply. The central philosophy behind post-scrimmage kick enforcement is that we pretend that Team B is already in possession during the kick. During extra periods, that philosophy poses a problem, similar to the problem of letting Team A get a first down if it regains possession after a turnover. The basic premise of extra periods is that, again, there's only one possession per team. So there is this explicit exception in 10.2.3.B.1. Quote, post-scrimmage kick enforcement applies only to fouls by Team B during a scrimmage kick and only when the kick is not during a try, a successful field goal, or in an extra period. End quote. Problem five, turnovers and penalties often happen during the same down. The combination of a turnover and fouls by both teams presents a complicated enough situation during the first four periods. When that perfect storm occurs during an extra period, the philosophy of one series per team further complicates matters. That's why exception G to 313 is necessary. I want to see if I can boil things down to simplest terms. Here are 
the principles that I think can help us sort out what to do. One, separate the down into two possession intervals, before possession changes and after. Two, determine whether the fouls by each team occurred solely within one of the intervals. If both occurred in the first interval, proceed as in any situation involving offsetting fouls. If both occurred in the second interval, the penalties are declined by rule. Three, if fouls occurred in each of the two intervals, determine whether the sequences were Team A then Team B or Team B then Team A. Team B's foul, and when it happened, is the critical factor. If Team B has clean hands, as in the A to B sequence, the fouls cancel and the down is not repeated. However, if Team B has dirty hands, as in the B to A sequence, the penalties are treated in the usual way, and the result will be offsetting fouls and a repeat of the down. The Reading Study Guide states this as well as I've seen. Quote, if there are live ball fouls by each team and Team B's foul is before the change of possession, it does not matter whether Team A's foul occurs before or after the change of team possession. The foul's offset and the down is replayed. Finally, remember the four exceptions that allow fouls to be carried over to the subsequent play or series. Flagrant personal fouls, unsportsmanlike conduct fouls, dead ball personal fouls, live ball fouls treated as dead ball fouls. The Reading Study Guide suggests a mnemonic for remembering these exceptions. Flagrant personal fouls begins with F. Unsportsmanlike conduct fouls begins with U. Dead ball personal fouls begins with D, and live ball fouls treated as dead ball fouls begins with L. That creates the acronym FUDL or FUDDLE, which is very similar to HUDDLE, the online video resource we use to view game video. Remember, too, that these four types of fouls are enforced at the succeeding spot, and dead ball fouls and live ball fouls treated as dead ball fouls do not cancel a score. I'll wrap up this discussion with an example from the Reading Study Guide illustrating when fuddle exceptions do and do not apply. Quote, During the first possession series of an extra period, B-42 intercepts a pass, and during his run back for an apparent score, B-38A commits a flagrant personal foul, or B makes a block below the waist. Ruling. The score is canceled. In A, the penalty is accepted, and the next series begins first and 10 for Team B at the designated 40-yard line. B-38 is disqualified. In B, the penalty is declined by rule and is not carried over to the next series. Team B begins its possession series at the designated 25-yard line. This is example 7-87 on page 107. 
end quote. I must say, in comparison to the NCAA tiebreaker that so many fans and commentators shower with love, the NFL tiebreaker system strikes me as actually more nearly achieving the goal of playing real football. But the NCAA system isn't far behind, and we simply must make the effort to fully prepare ourselves for the rules tweaks necessary to make the extra periods approach work. The bottom line is that extra periods proceed just like the first four periods until they don't. If you keep in mind that there cannot be a play outcome that awards either team a second possession series, you should be able to figure out and explain what you've done in a situation made more complex by turnovers and by possibly multiple fouls by one or both teams. So that's it. I can't believe that I'm coming to the windup of the Sibling Rules Project with next week's episode, which will perhaps save the best for last in considering the rules dyad of touchback versus safety. Few things befuddle fans, commentators, and even some coaches more than matters of responsibility, initial impetus, and loose ball status. You don't want to miss this exciting conclusion to the battles of the sibling rules. Remember, I'm a member of the Austin Football Officials Association. If you'd like to learn more about us, contact us. You can email us at recruiting at afoa.ws, visit our website at www.austinfootballofficials.org, or call us at 512-298-2987. Until next time, have a great week.